You're listening to It's a Grown-Up Life. Journalists and lifelong friends Samantha Simmons and Lauren Libert come together in this topical podcast to discuss the issues facing midlife women today. The highs, the lows, the challenges and the rewards. It's time for our grown-up news review. Lauren, what's caught your eye in the news over the last few weeks? Oh, you'll be very interested in this one, Samantha. So there is a new book out by the writer Alexandra Rainworth. It's got quite a crude title. It's called The Good Girl's Guide to Being a Dick. And in it, she talks about the secret to eternal happiness, which I'm afraid isn't green juice, it isn't yoga. Um, That's good news. It is good news. <laughs> and in fact, it's ditching tedious friends and not being such a people pleaser. Mm. So um, there's a great interview with Rainworth by Hilary Rose in The Times in which she talks about how she was spending far too much of her life having coffee with friends she didn't like, going to parties she didn't want to and caring about what other people thought of her, which is something that we can totally understand. So the book is about distinguishing what's important and what's not important, but actually without feeling and becoming a horrible person, because I think that's our problem, isn't it? We can't seem to get rid of people because we're so worried. Um, she says, you're not going to find happiness by going out with people who don't make you happy and you don't have to feel bad about it. Now, um, Josh Glancy, who uh, wrote a column in The Times, and he said something similar. Now, he's 20-something, mm. and he's in the midst of wedding season. Um, and he writes about being excluded from a friend's wedding, and I'm going to quote him here. Not getting invited to someone's wedding can cast a pall over years of friendship. Did they secretly despise me all along? Did they hate my girlfriend? Was it all a lie? But then he says he quite likes the clarity that the wedding invite no-show brings. Mm. He says, so many of our social interactions are cloaked in artifice but wedding invites have a clarifying effect they force us into some radical truthfulness people must assess how much they really care about each other and whether they want to spend a hundred pounds on giving you a precious seat (laughs) it all comes down to money in the end what's the friendship worth yeah a hundred pounds is quite a lot of money isn't it um so he talks about knowing more where people really stand now and i like to think that a midlife friendship cull which i am now coining it and it works in the same way so it's cleansing it's clarifying and actually it's very necessary it's at a stage in our lives we only have so much time Mm. and we need to be really discerning about who we spend our time with so (laughs) I think you know this already but I ended a very close old friendship with someone last year who kept disappointing me kept hurting me and it was such a tortuous and difficult thing to do at first I just avoided her or ghosted her Um, I made excuses not to see her but then she clocked on and she hunted me down for an explanation and I ended up just saying it outright saying look you're not the kind of person I need in my life right Mm. now and it was takes guts actually it did take guts and it was really awkward but afterwards I felt so light and unburdened like I didn't have to pretend anymore Mm. so do you not feel like there's a few friends out there you could share you know what I've never suffered fools gladly I've never spent time with people I don't want to spend time with so all those people yeah exactly but I'm one of them I, 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 I because I think I'm 
I sort of wear my heart on my sleeve. I can't really hide You're what I think of person. people. I am a very straight person. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I, I think the last time I literally broke off a friendship was a long time ago. It was probably 15 years ago. And it was a friend who just was really negative uh, mm-hmm. to me and around me and um, didn't make me feel good about anything. So, I, and that was the first, last sort of friendship I mm. specifically ended. So now I feel like all the people I have in my life are people I choose to have in my life. I think I you're very to. good at that. I think you are very good at that. You've always had a very small, close circle of friends. And I think you've always been very distinct. Yeah. So congratulations, Samantha. <laughs> I, meanwhile, you've I'm made, in the midst of a middle. You've cult. made the cut. Never mind that. You've made the cut. Yeah, and you've made my cut But also, as well. I am very loyal. And I think my, you know, my good friends are my good friends. And I sort of don't give up on them. And, you know, hopefully. Unless they give up on you, obviously. Unless they give up yes. on me. So what's your news pick, Samantha? Well, we've been hearing so much of late about the dangers of mobile phone and gaming addiction for our kids. Well, now the international magazine, The Atlantic, has got a different take on it. In its summer issue, it's got an article about the dangers that screens have for our children. But it focuses on the fact that those dangers are leading to crummy parenting who have actually tuned out their children. It says that physically parents are more present than they've ever been, but actually we're less engaged and emotionally connected to our kids than ever before because of these blasted devices that they're we constantly have in our they? hands. Yeah. They're babysitters, but it's not that that's the issue. It's the fact that we're looking at them all the time. You know, whenever it bleeps, we pick it up, we have a look. And I do it. I'm sure you do it as well. It's constantly there. And, and I'm very aware that sometimes I am distracted. And even, for example, you know, my sort of our sacred time is bedtime when you spend that one-on-one time you're reading and I have to make a conscious effort to not bring my phone into the kid's bedroom because otherwise I will be distracted I'll just pick it up it's it's literally become such a habit that you almost can't turn it off but this isn't just about being distracted it's saying it's actually harmful for our children's development and it discusses the way that parents talk to their children when they're toddlers and when they're developing and how that signaling system actually builds the architecture of their brain and when we're distracted by our phones when we're texting emailing checking Instagram we're interrupting the very basic of that conversation and their development according to this article but that's got to be that's got to be quite extreme so there are obviously occasions when I'm with my children and I might be reading an email or a text message and they'll ask me something I go hmm Yes. Yeah, and it makes the and port- they shout yeah. at me and they go, but then, and then I realise and I will put the phone down. Yeah. But then it, this must be this kind of damage that we're doing here. That's got to be something that you're doing constantly and long term, and it means you're never having conversations yeah. with your children. It makes the point that of course we're all going to be distracted at some time, and we cannot indulge our children by being there twenty four seven, literally responding to their every need that moment. Um, and it is extreme, but the, the fact is that we are doing it more and more and more, and so it's becoming part of the fabric of society and part of the fabric of parenting and also for the emotional side of things it says adults who are distracted by a phone miss emotional cues and can misread them it says obviously as I said we don't need to give our kids our complete undivided attention it would be impossible and not good on lots of levels but we do need to be more physically present um because we need to allow them to express themselves fully and we need to be able to pick up on what it is they are saying and what they're doing. And I think you do sometimes curtail conversations with the kids mm. because you are so busy and you are distracted by your phone. So you might ask them a question and then are you really listening to the answer and mm. do you carry on that conversation? I'm sure that sometimes I don't. On the other side of this coin, I want to talk about Fortnite, the much maligned game which is 
blighting so many parents' lives. And we've had a big conversation about this. Much has been written about the highly addictive and violent nature of what really has become a global phenomenon. It's free, um, but it's not just on a PS4 because my 10-year-old, I promised him that he could have a PS4 when he turned 10. And then we all this stuff came out about Fortnite. And I asked you about it. And when you first got it, what did you say to me? You said, oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. And then when we had a subsequent conversation, what did you say? I said, absolutely do not get it for as long as you can. Because it has made my life pretty much hell. And I think most, um, as many parents um, of children with my age, so I've got a 10-year-old and 11-year-old, and um, the problem the problem with the game is that it's online, you're playing with other people, and it has no pause button. You have to wait for ages until you actually die mm. for the game to end. And I think that's the bugbear for so many parents. Call them in for dinner? No, you can't come in for dinner. Give me five minutes, give me ten minutes. Mm. But I think over time, I mean, they probably have the game now for maybe three or four months, and I think over time I'm learning how to use it and I'm learning ways so they earn their fortnight time and then when it's time the time has gone then they ha- I have to encourage them to die I know it sounds a bit thing but I'm saying come on now mm. you have to die and then they have to die within a certain time so I think I'm getting there they earn it and I'm trying to use it to my advantage but if you can avoid it the only problem is they're all playing it wow. all their friends are playing it so the, the Guardian columnist Gabby Hinscliffe has written a piece entitled Fortnite let me count the ways in which I hate thee and she talks about the things that you're talking about but also the really the violent nature of it um, and the fact that it's got a kind of hunger style hunger game style premise that players parachute onto a cartoon island where they have to kill and even though there's no blood and gore they the aim is to be the number one left standing Um, and she says that what singles this game out from others is its addictiveness and the compulsive nature that encourages Mm. in children it's she talks of uh, one kid a nine-year-old British girl who wet herself rather than stop playing then hit her dad because he tried to stop her um she says that she like you has reached an uneasy truce but she says that gaming companies have to be more responsible they make these games to be addictive why can't they make games that aren't violent um and she does make the point well maybe if more women made games Mm -hmm. and perhaps it would be different but she says the industry does need to be responsible and not ignore their really requirements to to keep people safe Mm. and to stop children becoming hooked on games like this. So for the moment, the game is banned in my house. He has said when he's 11, will I revisit it? And I said, well, I will. But also I think that schools need to take a stand here. And our school, my kid's primary school, did send an email out saying that this is a 12 plus game. No kid in this school is 12 and they shouldn't be using it. And I think parents sometimes need that kind of lead. Yes, I think so, but I think it's very hard um, if some children have already got it to actually implement that. Well, John will be tough. Tough parenting. Mm, not such a great tough parent. <laughs> um, and lastly, I just want to mention very quickly, um, Sex in the City, 20th anniversary um, this week. And... Um, I love that show. I absolutely love that show. I grew up with it. Um, it's been criticised for being too white, too frivolous, too shallow, too materialistic. But for me, what this show glorified, and I was talking about friendship before, is the importance of female friendship in those seminal single years when boyfriends come and go and they cause utter chaos. But your girlfriends are everything. They're always there. They're supporting you, turning up with a pad thai and a bottle of wine when your eyes are so puffy from crying you can hardly <laughs> see. And it also exposed some gene 
extraneous truths about datings too. I can't forget that brilliant episode when Berger, Carrie's boyfriend at the time, I don't know if you remember, a bit of a douchebag, he ended it with a post-it Yeah, note. I remember that. Um, but he tells Miranda, if a guy didn't want to come upstairs after their first date, he just wasn't that into mm. you. If we're into you, he said, we're coming upstairs, we're booking the next <laughs> date, and there are no mixed messages. It was like a light switch came on yeah. for Miranda and for the rest of us single just, girls yeah. at the time. You didn't want to know it really almost, did you? No, but, but it was yeah. brilliant. It was like, you know, as Miranda said, oh my gosh, he's just not that into me. That's the most liberating <laughs> thing I've ever heard. Anyway, genius. I'm just, that's my little mini tribute to Sex yeah. in the City. Delighted to have with us author Erin Kelly to talk about her grown-up life. Erin wrote her first book while pregnant in 2008 and has written six more psychological thrillers since. The most recent being He Said, She Said, which spent 12 weeks on the Sunday Times bestseller chart and is out in paperback now. So Erin, welcome and such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for having me. So Erin, when did you first feel grown-up? Um, I think I first felt grown up when I got my first diary and I remember really clearly when it happened so I would have been 22 and on work experience at Cosmopolitan magazine which was my break into journalism and I remember turning up to have I remember turning up to work experience and people saying you know put this in your diary for a a day ahead a week ahead and me think of don't be ridiculous god you're such suits man why do you need a diary you know can't you be like me and just hold it in your head what's up with you guys you're so like tied to your life and then I actually realized it was because I hadn't really had anything to do for the past 22 years I hadn't had a life that wasn't mapped out in you know I I'd done after I graduated I did a series of um not great jobs in call centres and I worked in a pub and I always knew where I was going to be and nothing ever broke out of the routine apart from maybe a haircut or a dentist appointment. I even knew which clubs or pubs I would be in at any given night because I was such a creature of routine you know every now and then a holiday would come in I would write it on a calendar and that would be fine but a diary that you have to carry around so that you might need to make plans while you were in the middle of things or when you were at your desk. Mm -hmm. I remember thinking that was just such an old person's thing to have and then of course once I was on work experience and I was out doing roving reporter stuff and I was having to forward plan I lasted about 10 days before I got one and I do remember thinking that that was a real a real rite of passage and that I finally arrived. So what do you think is the hardest thing about being a grown-up do you think? Uh, the hard, I don't think I've done the hardest thing about being a grown-up yet I'll be honest with you I think it is the point which lots of my friends are reaching at the moment, and I'm fortunately not there yet, it's the point where you are where the buck stops. Mm -hmm. So I'm really lucky that I still have both my parents with me. The point I think at which you really truly become an adult is when either you lose your parents or they become dependent on you. I can still turn to my own parents if I need advice about looking after my own children, or if I need somebody to look after my own children, or I want to get a second opinion on something they are still there for me. What's the best part of being the age you are? And I hope you don't mind me asking how old you are. I don't mind it too. I'm 41. Early 40s seem to me to be a great place to be because I I still feel, I mean, you know, bits are going. You know, the upper arms have <laughs> run their way out. The, the skin under my eyes isn't what it was. But I'm still, you know, I'm still young enough to be physically fit and I can still 
go to the gym and lift weights and I can still run around with my kids and I really appreciate knowing that I won't have these this health forever. So what has being older taught you that you didn't realise when you were younger? I think it's taught me that the world isn't as black and white as I used to think it was. Um, I'm still... My convictions remain my convictions, but I used to see the world in terms of you were either with me or against me. Certainly, my politics were a lot more militant when I was a younger woman. So I I used to believe that, for example, that certain parties had the answer, and now I realise how complicated and nuanced things are. This is partly, I think, me being older and understanding more and having more empathy, and certainly... I judge people a lot less now, and I think that's just life experience. The more people you meet, the more you understand what's going on behind the surface. So what would you say now to your younger self, if you were going to talk to Erin 20 years younger than you, what would you say to yourself? Um, I would probably say don't be in such a, a rush to achieve things early. Now, I mentioned earlier that when I left university, I did a series of dead-end jobs. All I'd ever wanted to do was write. But I remember feeling very clearly that um, because I hadn't written anything for my student newspaper, it was too late to try to make it in journalism. And I told myself that at 21, which now, of course, seems laughable. Mm. Um, I've got friends who are still getting book deals, for example, well into their 50s and 60s. And I now understand that it's certainly never too late to... Uh, journalism's a career that kind of suits people who are young without necessarily that many ties. But writing fiction... There is no age cap on, on that at all. And I would just tell myself that there's absolutely no hurry to tick all these boxes. And actually, what will make you a better writer is living and doing as many different jobs as you can and meeting as many different people as you can. So work-life balance. You're, you're married, you have two children, and you're a successful author. Um, how do you do it? Well, I don't think I really do, and, and I think if I can't, who can? So I, in, on, on paper, I have it easier than anybody I know. So I work from home, which in theory enables me to be present for school concerts and holidays and pick up and drop off. My husband is chiefly a house husband. He's, um, he acts, but part-time, and it's more kind of corporate role-play these days than anything that takes him away from home for weeks on end. And... Um, yeah, and I still don't feel that I've got it right. I think in my case, the problem isn't that I'm not physically available, but that I find it very different, difficult to, you know, I can't do my job only in school hours. And so I have to work weekends and I have to work holidays and sometimes I have to work when they're after school. And I find it very difficult to close the door on my kids. And uh, they find it difficult as well. I mean, I'm often trying to write a really climactic scene in a novel and I'll find that they've you know, for example, the five-year-old is very fond of dismantling a necklace and posting it under the gap in my door bead by bead while I'm trying to write. Um, but I also find the um, I find the, the flip side hard as well. I find it really difficult to park my work because it's, it's imaginative and it's quite consuming. You can't really write a good book unless you let yourself get completely obsessed with it. So... I find it difficult to switch off my writing head and put on my mum head. And sometimes I feel like I should do a little fake commute. So instead of stepping out of my study, which is a box room on the landing next to the girls' bedrooms, I almost feel that I should sort of climb out the window and run around the park a couple of times mm -hmm. so that I can create some space between work head and parenting head. Well, thank you so much, Erin. That is your grown-up life, and thank you so much for talking to us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.
Let's discuss our grown-up picks. Samantha? Well, I want to talk about a book that I really love. It's called The Invention of Wings by Sue Monk Kidd. And that name might be familiar to a lot of people because she also wrote a book called The Secret Life of Bees. The book is set in the American Deep South in the early 1800s. And it's essentially about the struggle of one girl called Sarah Grimke. And she's part of a wealthy slave-owning family. And on her 11th birthday, she is given a 10-year-old slave girl called Handful as a gift. She's literally wrapped up in lavender ribbons and presented to her. And while for the rest of the family and her friends owning slaves, it's completely natural, Sarah cannot stand the notion. So she decides to teach Handful to read and to promise her one day to free her. And it's that promise which really drives the story through the coming decades. What I love particularly about this book and what I didn't realise until the end, and I don't think I'm giving anything away because it only adds to it in my view, is that it's actually based on a true story. So Sarah Grimke was a real person and her story is all the more remarkable for it. She basically breaks free from her family um, and the chains that bound her even though obviously she is a free woman she isn't because of the tradition that her family expects of her so she goes on to leave a really different life and she becomes an early feminist and an anti-slavery pioneer and you follow these two women through their decades and through their struggles and For me, I just can't imagine the strength and determination it must have taken for her to go against everything that she grew up learning and the traditions of her own family and breaking the bonds with her own family. Really, she sacrifices much along the way. I found the book emotional and awe-inspiring. TV-wise, this is one of my favourite series ever. It's Grace and Frankie, which is on Netflix. It stars Jane Fonda, uh, Martin Sheen, Lily Tomlin and Sam Waterstone. So really familiar names Mm -hmm. to a lot of us. And it's about two couples who are in their late 60s early 70s they've been lifelong friends well the husbands have been friends anyway they're business partners but the wives cannot stand each other so the opening scene is they're all out for dinner the wives think that their husbands are going to announce their retirement but instead they drop a bombshell they are in a gay relationship and they are leaving their respective wives to set up home together (laughs) Well, you can only imagine the fallout, not just for the wives, but for their extended families, their children as well. Dealing with divorcing parents, newly outed gay dads. It's absolutely hilarious. It's sad. And it's brilliantly acted and scripted. And I have to say, Jane Fonda is my new hero. She is over 80 years old. She looks unbelievable. I know she's had a lot of work done. But somehow, I don't know, it just doesn't look OTT. And she's a really great actress. I don't really remember her from anything in my past. I mean, she's obviously been around literally for decades. The writing is so sharp. Practically every line is a funny one. Now, my parents got divorced when I was older, so I can really relate to it. And I thought that's perhaps why I really loved it. But it's not because I've got friends and we're actually on a WhatsApp group together. And they, what, a Grace and Frankie WhatsApp well, group? Well, kind of. We don't call it that. <laughs> Has it become we that? Call, we call the green, green tea, the green Tea Club. Not quite sure why. We never meet for green tea. <laughs> but anyway, we, we constantly texting each other about what we've seen and what bits are really funny. Really good. What about you? What are your top picks? Um, well, I've also been watching a show on Netflix, a little bit different. Um, this one is called The Letdown. Have you heard of it? No, I haven't. So it's a darkly comic show about early motherhood and um, some critics say if you haven't had kids yet, this show will make you never want to be a parent. Um, It doesn't sugarcoat motherhood at all but tells it as it is in its awful, sleep-deprived, frazzled state. And it's actually really good for those of us that are way past the baby years because it reminds you of those moments. That's probably good for me because I still get broody. Well, that's it. And it sort of (laughs) makes you feel so 
so grateful you're no longer steeped in baby vomit and arguing about whose turn it is to get up in the middle of the night. So the opening scene um, in the first episode is an absolute classic. Um, New mum, Audrey... She's just got her baby to sleep by driving her around in the car, as you do at night. Yeah, we did that. Um, And she basically parks in um, a spot that is where a drug dealer, um, it's his place of business. And she's so desperate not to start the engine and wake the baby up that she agrees to buy drugs, anything, so she can stay (laughs) in that spot. Not so many of us can relate to that. Yeah, and then he tells her the exorbitant prices. She can't afford it. So then she even offers to pay him to help roll the car forward (laughs) out of a spot, which is actually going to cost her $20. It's so funny, and it depicts the desperation of new motherhood perfectly. You'll do anything to keep the baby asleep. Um, the show covers all the other seminal new parent experiences we've probably all been through at some stage. So the judgmental baby groups, sleep training with a stopwatch and enjoying the hell that is your baby's crying, um, being excluded by your single no-kids friends. Um, I'm wondering when you'll ever have sex again. Actually, it's more her husband that's wondering that. Um, But it's great viewing. It leaves you feeling more than a little smug that those days of parenting Mm. are over. In terms of books, um, this is something a bit different. Um, This was called um, With the End in Mind, Dying, Death and Wisdom in an Age of Denial. And it's by the palliative care doctor, Dr. Catherine Mannix. So it sounds like it should be a really grim read, um, dealing with something as dark and terrifying as the end of our lives. But that is Mannix's point that death doesn't have to be so scary so as a society she says we have lost the art of talking about and dealing with death so people are living longer and they're dying in hospitals and hospices so we're we're not seeing death anymore and so now we think of it as something frightening and taboo and we don't want to talk about it but she talks of death like as a rite of passage Mm. so just as we have midwives who are birth specialists and they take us through all the procedures of an uncomplicated birth, so too there should be death wives, so palliative care doctors like herself, who can explain the various stages of dying, which in the majority of cases, she said, also follows a set pattern. But what's really fascinating about this book is her stories from the bedsides of so many of her dying patients. So... um, There was one particular story she talks about, which is um, two adult grown-up sons who were in denial about their mother dying, and they never allowed her to mention it. So whenever she said, look, I want to talk to you about something, they'd say, oh, don't be silly, Mum, you're just ill, you'll get better. And in the end, when Catherine Mannix, the doctor, asked them what their mother wanted um, for her end-of-life treatment, they hadn't got a clue because they'd never actually spoken about it to her before it was too late. This is what Catherine talks about throughout her whole book. She talks about these missed opportunities because we're so frightened Mm. of this very natural rite of passage. We're running away from the reality of death and we might never be able to tell someone how much we love them. Mm. We might never be able to tell them, comfort them um, in their last moments. So it's a fascinating and important read and you will be gripped Mm. and it'll change the way you think about death and the conversations around it I think Now it's time for our grown-ups gone mad section What have you seen Lauren? 
this is so funny. So obviously we're coming to the end of the school year, aren't we? Um, so are you stuck for an idea for your kids' PE teacher's present this year? So how about getting Olympic swimmer Rebecca Adlington to send them a little video message instead of giving them a box of boring chocolates? Oh, it's brilliant. It's household names from the 80s. So pantomime stars, reality TV stars. They're amongst celebs charging £10 to £50 a time to send a personalised video message directly mm. to fans' phones. So um, listen to the celebs that are available at the moment. Um, DJ Pat Sharp, remember yeah, him? Yeah, remember him with the, long, with the uh, mullet. Was it a mullet that yeah, had? Yeah, yeah. Just £30. <laughs> <laughs> John Thompson from Coffee, £30. Oh, um, pantomime star Christopher Biggins, £25. Not sure why he's a little bit less. How and do they fa- scale them? Yeah, that's kind of I, harsh, well, just, isn't if it? If you go on this website, celebvm.com. So go on, who would um, you have? And the most popular, though, very yeah. funnily, is Boise from Only Fools and Horses, okay. who's £30. So... I think what I would like, Samantha, my birthday's the 25th of October. Yeah, I know what it is. I think a video from Kit Harrington, a.k.a. John Snow. He just got married. Let's not talk about that. (laughs) Um, In his full Game of Thrones get-up, and I think it would work wonders for me. What about you? What have you been looking at? So many of us have used an online dating site. And this day and age, I guess uh, most of us, or many of us, will have met a new partner through one. They kind of came around after... After my time, certainly their popularity, so I didn't. But I do know many people who've met their husbands on a dating site and many people who have had utterly disastrous dating experience on dating sites. But I never heard of this one. Someone actually suing a dating site. This is what 47-year-old Teresa Berkey, who's a divorced mother of three, is doing. She paid Elite Dating Service 73 £12,600 for gold membership and she wants her money back because... They didn't deliver the rich and successful man with multiple homes that she hoped for. How many dates did she actually go on? Well, she says she wasn't put in touch with any of the men whose profiles had been shown to her before she stumped off this huge amount of cash for this membership fee. She said that she was promised bachelors you dream of meeting. She says they never materialised, which caused her quote, distress and frustration. She told the High Court, you shouldn't promise people who are in a fragile state of mind in their mid-40s the man of their dreams. <laughs> well, I agree, and I think I'm going to sue whoever wrote Cinderella. <laughs> <laughs> I love this so much. I think it's um, it's brilliant. I, if she wins, oh my goodness, can you imagine the number of, of cases that are going to be out back. there? Yeah. I mean, I can think of at least half a dozen friends who would um, be onto Tinder and all sorts of websites <laughs> right now. Dodgy um, dates. Great story. Now it's time for our grown-up talking point. What happens to our bodies in midlife and the checks we should be thinking about? I'm delighted to have with us Dr Ellie Cannon, GP, and author of Is Your Job Making You Ill? and Keep Calm, the new mum's manual. Ellie, really good to see you. You too. So let's talk, first of all, about boobs. When can you get checked and when should you get checked? And is there a difference? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So what we talk about nowadays, particularly in terms of breasts, is actually women knowing what's normal for them. You should know what they look like. I know that sounds obvious. We all sort of know what our boobs look like. But you should know what they look like and are they changing. If one's always been bigger than the other, then that's fine. But those sort of things, really important, knowing what's normal for you. And then, in terms of getting checked out, mammograms start from the age of 50, but sometimes now in some areas 
the invitations are coming earlier for women and there are pilots to start mammos at 47 or even 48 um, and you can find out when when it's starting for you from your GP and then obviously there's a section of women who may have family history of breast cancer and if you have a family history of breast cancer you really need to first of all find out what that is so when did the person have it? Was it before menopause? Was it after? Um, who is there in the family? Are there aunties? Are there cousins? What cancers are there on your dad's side? Because that can also be relevant for breast cancer. Um, and then take that whole family history to the GP and say, you know, this is me. Um, do I need to be referred to a family history clinic? Now, actually, you need to have quite a really significant family history to be involved in a family history clinic. So at least three relatives who are quite close to you who've actually, you know, had breast cancer. But it's still worth the discussion and it's still worth that sort of vigilance that you might be under. What about other types of hereditary cancers? Um, for example, a friend of mine was telling me that her mum has had bowel cancer yeah. in the past. Mm -hmm. So she now voluntarily goes and gets a private check once mm -hmm. a year. Now, mm -hmm. bowel cancer also runs in my family, but one generation removed. So at what point should you be going to get these things checked? And should you be paying perhaps privately to go and get these things worked mm -hmm. out, sorted out? Well, it's a balance, isn't it? Because it's a balance in sort of like over-checking and then all the anxiety and the potentially sort of false positives that go with that. And then also, um, obviously, making sure you're being screened enough. So, yes, bowel cancer also is um, hereditary, and it can be hereditary, it can run in families. Um, and there are different sort of statistical models of who is at risk or not. So, again... That should be spoken about with your GP, um, particularly if they're younger bowel cancer, so under the age of 50. So let's talk about periods now, because at this age, sort of 40 mm -hmm. plus, they yeah. can be all over the place. Some people have heavier ones, some disappear, become more frequent, infrequent. Um, how do we know what's going on? Because we now know this phrase perimenopause, don't we, mm -hmm. like uh, pre-menopause. How do we know if that's what we're in, what we should be doing, if it is? Should we be doing anything? Um, so again, it's all about what's normal for you. So what's a heavy period to me might not be heavy for you and sort of vice versa. It's very normal in your 40s for periods to change, but well before the perimenopause. So it might just get heavier, they might change. Um, the perimenopause is really the time before the menopause. And what a lot of women don't realise is actually your periods can get a lot worse and a lot heavier and actually more frequent and that can even be for as much as two years so if the sort of earlier stage that a woman can go through menopause normally would be 48 you know perimenopause could start around 45 46 I would say that all heavier bleeding should always really be checked out and I say that because heavy bleeding or bleeding in between periods can be a sign rarely but importantly of womb cancer so it's always really important to check um but yeah your periods change in your 40s and they can do and and if what i always say to patients is if you're not coping with that if that's stopping you having a relationship going to work looking after your kids then that's a problem if it's not and you're coping then it's not a problem but if if, if it's a big change and it's interrupting your life 
that's a problem that needs to be dealt with. So you should go and see your GP? Yeah, you should be discussing that with your GP or if you have a gynaecologist with a gynaecologist. Okay, let's talk about our memory because, again, it seems like an age thing, but you don't know if it is an age thing. Um, I know loads of friends who say, oh, I've just forgotten to do this or, you know, this has slipped my mind or they just can't remember a basic fact. Mm. Um, and I know it happens to me and you think, well, like, it's just because I'm tired or I'm busy or I've got so much on my plate. What point should we start to be concerned if we really feel like our, our memory is going? Yeah, I mean, I hope it is just age, because I've certainly got that as well. So I've heard this described really well in terms of dementia and people worrying about, are they getting early-onset dementia, which I have to tell you is incredibly rare. But we all have situations where we're at home and we leave the room to go to another room to do something, and you get to that room and you've totally forgotten Happens what you've got. all in. the time to me. Okay, so if that is happening, then that's absolutely fine. What you need to worry about is if you go into that other room and you've forgotten what that room is. That's when it's really a worry. I think the number of things that women are often juggling at this stage in their lives, um, it's not uncommon to forget you know, that you actually went into the kitchen to find your car keys. Okay, and energy levels. Again, it seems to be a really common conversation that I'm mm. having with a lot of friends. They're tired, they're exhausted. Um, is there anything that we should be doing? Is this, again, a cause for worry, or is it just a result of our busy lives? I think energy levels is really interesting because it's something people come to the GP with a lot. We have something which we call tired all the time, or you'll see it on blood forms. The doctor would have written tat um, because they're sort of, you're worried about your energy levels. Um, and so it is a really common issue, and I think people forget to look at the really obvious things. So first of all, sleep. Are you sleeping enough? Is it purely just a situation of not sleeping enough? Diet, you know, a lot of the time uh, women skip meals or they're trying to lose weight or they're not sort of great with what they're eating and not eating nutritionally good or nutritionally dense food. Um, and that can be why people are tired. So once you've looked at sort of basics, then there are other reasons why people's energy levels drop. So thyroid problems are really, really common. One in 50 people have an underactive thyroid, and that makes people feel sluggish, lacking in energy, far more common in women than in men. And sort of 30s and 40s is quite a common age to be diagnosed. Um, B12, which is one of the vitamins that we get from animal-derived products, so either meat and fish or you get it sort of from eggs and dairy. People can have deficiencies of that, um, and that can make people very tired. Vitamin D, because we're all lacking, sadly, in sunshine mm. in this country, so that can be another reason. So there are some vitamin reasons, some mineral reasons, I have to say, in the majority of women who ask me about it and we do some blood tests, often it comes down to lifestyle, just mm. juggling too much. Um, but if, if it's a consistent issue and if it's something that, you know, it's actually, again, really affecting quality of life, it's stopping you doing something that you'd really like to do, then that's a problem and that needs to be looked at. Dr Ellie Cannon, thank you very much for taking us through what happens to our bodies in midlife and the checks that we should all be thinking about. Thank you.
That's it for this episode of It's a Grown Up Life. Thanks so much for listening. Please do get in touch on Twitter at It's a Grown Up Life or you can email us at It's a Grown Up Life 08 at gmail.com. You can also subscribe now on iTunes to the podcast. We'd really love to hear from you. Next episode in our Grown Up Talking Point, we're discussing the midlife career switch with coaching psychologist and author of Mother's Work, Jessica Chivers. Should you switch? Can you switch? Let us know if you've got any questions you'd like us to put to her. Bye for now. Bye.